Hey everybody, this is Rafe Telsch and this is episode 52 of Have Not Seen This, a weekly in-depth look at a much-beloved movie selected specifically by our guest that they're a little surprised when they find out people have not seen. You know, when you go trick-or-treating, most of the houses give you the little fun-size candy. But every once in a while, you hit a gold mine and you find a house that has full-size candy bars. Think of this episode as a full-size candy bar, which is a fancy way of saying this is a long one. But it is wonderful. And it is long in part because we have our returning guest, Drew Meyer, who last talked with us about 10 episodes ago about The Thing. And this week, he brings another horror movie remake in the 80s, 1988's The Blob. Now, I made the candy bar analogy, but Drew, after we finished recording, sent me a little clip that I, I really like as far as why the episode is so long. And he said, my enthusiasm for The Thing is like recalling a first love. My enthusiasm for The Blob is like the passion for a new love. So I hope you will stick with us to the whole conversation. It is a fantastic episode. I will warn, there are spoilers galore for the movie, so if you have not seen it and you want to, you might check it out first. Uh, otherwise, it's our wonderful, entertaining conversation as always. So here we go with 1988's The Blob with Drew Meyer. So the the one question I forgot to ask you last time uh, that I that I should have, and I'm glad you've come back on. Which, by the way, I went back and and listened to that episode again. You set the bar really high as far as like your knowledge about the movie that you had picked. I I, I hope you didn't set it so high you can't live up to it again. <laughs> I I here's the thing though, um, and I think we mentioned this on the podcast. This is uh, yours was not the first podcast I've I've discussed the thing on, um, and when you you know you, before you decided to bring guests back, I was like, well, if I only get one shot to talk about a movie with my friend Rafe, it's going to be the movie I like talking about the most, right? And it's, right. It, it's a film that I have done research on. Uh, so yeah, you're right. It's a, it's a high bar to set. And most of the information I discussed when we were talking about the thing came off the top of my head. I didn't have to go back into notes and I didn't have to you know, do any kind of research ahead of time. I don't have like a guidebook in front of me. I don't have IMDb and any of that. I, I know that information. I'm not going to say that I haven't spent the last week researching this film, but <laughs> when we start discussing this film, and I'm being very vague as to what it is because of the shtick that I'm planning on pulling in second here, um, I have some plans. I have plans. This is, um, I, I feel like I have a new crusade, but... <laughs> I love I love when my guest has more plans for the podcast format than I do. <laughs> so no, one of the one of the questions I started asking people around episode 30 and then occasionally forget to ask uh, and I guess now that I have return guests, I have to remember whether I've asked them that or not, but I didn't. The podcast is called Have Not Seen This. So it's about movies that we want other people to see. We're surprised when they haven't seen them. What are your Have Not Seen This movies? What are movies you haven't seen that your friends give you a hard time over? The number one film that when I mentioned that I haven't seen that people's eyebrows go up is Dirty Dancing. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> That's the one that seems to get the most reaction from folks, um, especially my wife, because occasionally it's one of those those things, uh, you know, she doesn't like horror films, so I, I'm never going to try to push 
a horror film on her. But when we first started dating, she's like, I don't, I'll watch whatever you want to watch. And so I, I sort of like, well, if we're going to be together, you need to watch this. You need to watch this. You need to watch this. You need to watch, you know, so I, I forced her to watch a lot of things. And occasionally she'll remind me of that and say, you owe me. Um, we're going to watch Dirty Dancing. <laughs> and we, we just have not gotten around to doing it yet. And I, I'm not opposed to watching it, though there is a certain glee I get uh, when people ask, and you know, and and I then Dances with Wolves is another one, and Schindler's List. Those three, Ooh. I feel though, I think uh, Dances with Wolves has really fallen off in popularity. That that yes. doesn't hold any kind of clout anymore. Um, but there was a time where Dances with Wolves was this thing where like, how could you not have seen Dances with Wolves? I mean, I just at the beginning of quarantine watched Avatar for the first time. I had uh, never seen well, that. Well, you've seen Dances with Wolves then. <laughs> I have, uh, yeah, and that's and that's why I brought it up because I've essentially seen Dances with Wolves, so I have been told. Yeah, I, Schindler's List is it, it's a challenging one because it is so brutal emotionally to watch, and yet I feel like it is an important capital I movie. So I really feel like everybody needs to have seen it at least once. And maybe not more than once, but people need to see it at least once. And, and I know, and I'm especially guilty of of just that in general, in that I understand the importance of watching or listening or reading certain things, but I know what kind of emotional toll they're going to take on me. And as an emotional coward, I avoid them. So... <laughs> You know, uh, to, to get a little real for a moment, um, one half of my family is Jewish. My father ended five generations of the rabbinical tradition. Oh, wow. To go into advertising. So Judaism is a, a, a kind of a major, it, it casts a long shadow in my family's history. We have lost family members in the war, in the camps. Um there is a there's a school and a synagogue in Flushing, New York, named after my grandfather, uh, great grandfather, and so um, there's just something about voluntarily watching a film about the extermination of your people, but at the same time, especially like say in 2020, where like watching films that discuss race and inequality and just injustice, it is important to force ourselves to watch those films. It's still very difficult for me as a mediocre white man to watch that because of the intense guilt I feel. And I know it's it's two sides of the same coin in that sense, but right. uh, yeah, like I said, I am an emotional coward, which is why I like discussing films, uh, you know, cult cinema and uh, quote unquote bad movies and and so, you know, like that along those lines. I feel like in many ways it's a avoiding reality, which is you know if you ask me to do one thing for the rest of my life, it would be playing role playing games. Clearly, you you're aware of that fact, uh, right? You know how much of my heart and soul I pour into that. Again, escaping reality because sometimes it is just too much to bear. So that is. Uh, the most sincere I'm going to be on this podcast for the rest of this episode. So, <laughs> so I, I have to admit, you know, I mean, you, you picked the thing for your first appearance. You've picked a, a, a movie that's not that dissimilar from mm. it in a lot of regards, which we'll, we'll get into. And yet, dis, despite having a, a very long friendship, I never pegged you as a horror person. 
You know what? It's interesting, too. Uh, I was afraid of horror movies as a kid. Uh, I was definitely firmly in the science fiction camp and uh, growing up. And that was the, the films that I liked. I, I still, there are certain movie posters that give me a visceral, nostalgic um, stomachache from walking into, um, what do they call them? There was a term that the UK used for video nasties, right? These horror movies that were considered to be egregiously grotesque and violent, and they were supposed to have cast this in the same way that, for instance, you know, uh, um, the American culture thought Dungeons and Dragons and teenagers, the UK thought that the videos did. But I remember going into the video store and and actively avoiding the horror aisle because looking at these covers scared me. And the yeah. other day I was just go- scrolling through, trying to figure out what movies I wanted to watch um, for October. And, you know, there's one of this, it's just a really kind of crude drawing of a young woman with a dagger in her hand and two skeletal arms reaching up from the bottom of the poster. And it's called Let's Scare Jessica to Death. And I hadn't thought of this movie in 35 years, probably. And I felt a knot in my stomach. And I'm like, this mm. is clearly something that that made me uneasy. Yeah. And it's not that I think once I watched these films, I realized there's nothing to be afraid of. I was just it's like there's nothing to fear but fear itself. Like it the the um, movies don't actually scare me. Uh, and I may have mentioned this on the last podcast. A couple of years back, I specifically went back to watch all the middle school films that I had avoided in middle school, the kinds that you would spend the night over at a friend's house and you would watch these kind of slasher films and stuff like that. And most of them are, are comical. Um, but I think that my appreciation for the horror genre has grown over the years because I feel it is a legitimate um, form of art. I mean, it's a legitimate oh, yeah. art form. Uh, and I think that certain films elevate themselves past viewers' expectations uh, and kind of exceed that genre. And I think can be held up in many ways as being the, the pick pinnacles of the genre. And I think um, John Carpenter's The Thing clearly is one of those films. Um, and I, I think if you look at horror across the, the decades, and I have been recently... I think that one holds up. And the the film that we're going to talk about today is one that I think is very uh, unregarded. I think it's been overlooked. And I I think I now feel like I need to champion this film. (laughs) And and I'll explain why in a little bit. But yeah, yeah. but you're right. I I, I wasn't much of a horror person prior to. And 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 that's that is changing. Well, before we get into the movie itself. Uh, you just recently on Facebook, you had done one of those challenges where someone challenged you to post uh, gifts from uh, 10 horror movies that you loved. Mm, uh, yes. will you, will you quickly run down that list of movies that you posted because this one didn't make your list, which I also find hilarious. <laughs> uh, yeah. In fact, I think I still have the the list right close to it. So uh, let's see. Uh, Tremors, um, David Cronenberg's The Fly, The Lost Boys, uh, Angel Heart, which I think is the one of one of two that just no one responded to when I posted the first alien film Videodrome also David Cronenberg um Cronenberg is uh one of my top 3 favorite directors of all time uh <laughs> Evil Dead 2 The Wicker Man Deep Rising and, and John Carpenter's The Thing of course 
uh, right, of course. bringing together. Yeah. So that gives people kind of a context as to what you think are the best horror movies. So, well, no, what no, no, are we no, 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 my favorite horror movies. Okay. Because okay. if you ask me which one of the best horror movies, I would probably change my opinion on that. And I also, and I, I recently did a, a, a one of these BuzzFeed surveys of the top 100 horror films of all time. How many of you have seen? And I'm actually maybe firmly in the 75% camp. There's quite a few of them that I still haven't watched and need to. And I've, I've started to um, collect uh, opinions that every once in a while I'll, I'll appeal to social media and go, you know, all right, these are the, these are the horror films that I've seen. What haven't I seen that you would recommend? And, and some people, you know, want to throw some good, bad horror films out there that I probably should see. But I also, um, I specifically said, I don't want slasher films. Um, cause I, it doesn't interest me, you know, like I don't, I don't care how good, uh, slasher films is as far as I'm concerned, there's really only two slasher films worth, talking about one is particularly important for for the season in which we're in right now <laughs> what's the other one <laughs> uh, nightmare on elm street is a slasher film that i think is 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 probably worth discussing yeah actually you know what friday the, the first friday the 13th too because um that really skews expectations uh without giving too much away but um uh, yeah the the first nightmare on elm street was like one of my first horror movies definitely my first slasher film that i have seen still to date have not seen any of the friday the 13th movies i, I, I think i've seen all, most of them uh, those you know those were definitely middle school most middle school films i did end up seeing uh with folks so all right so what are we talking about today it's halloween week what do you got for us well uh last time i was on you graciously allowed me to talk to you about john carpenter's the thing and and um i when you said, listen, we, you know, we got a, a chance to, to bring you back on. Would you be willing to come back on? Of course I'd be willing to come back on. When would it be coming out? Well, there's a chance it could be coming out Halloween week. Well, I mean, clearly there is only one choice. If you previously were talking about a John Carpenter film and the episode is coming out on Halloween week and we are talking about horror movies, the clear choice is, of course, going to be 1998's remake of The Blob. Um, and I know <laughs> it right. sounds like I said 1998, I yawned midway, it's 1988's The Blob, and that's what we're going to be talking about. Be that's right, <laughs> we're talking this week about 1988's The Blob, written by Theodore Simonson, Kay Lineker, and Chuck Russell, and Frank Darabont, based on a story by Irvin H. Milgate, directed by Chuck Russell, starring Kevin Dillon, Shawnee Smith, Jeffrey DeMunn, Paul McCrane, and Joe Seneca. If it had a mind, you could reason with it. If it had a body, you could shoot it. If it had a heart, you could kill it. Now, man is no longer the supreme being on this planet. The organism is growing at a geometric rate. By all accounts, it's at least a thousand times its original mass. Nobody believes me about what happened tonight. What did happen? You were there, you saw. Plasmic life form that hunts its prey. Predator. I want that organism alive. I think you ticked it off. 
terror has no shape. Uh, I know previously listening to the podcast, uh, you had been going through these series of really great action films from the 80s. And and I, there's parentheses over really great. <laughs> but, you know, there's a film that I, that was a real part of my teenage years that kind of fell into that 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 same genre, uh, which is um, in 1989's Blood of Heroes, which is a post-apocalyptic sports movie starring Rudger Hauer, um, which I is... I don't know that one. No, and, no, and very few people do. Uh, and I think when you find someone who who knows that film, you're going to find someone who loves that film. And it's definitely a film worth watching. I would love to come back and talk about it at some point in time in the future. I already know what my next film on this podcast is going to be. Um, <laughs> but at some point in time, Blood of Heroes is definitely one that we've got to we've got to talk about. But I came to a realization after you and I talked about the thing. Uh, I was looking at horror films that I, I have enjoyed. And I realized a lot of the horror films that I specifically like are films that are remakes, horror remakes of classic science fiction films. I mean, when you talk about the remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, you're looking at a stupendous film with amazing star power that took a, a really great idea and, and, and really ran with it. Uh, one day, possibly the next time I'm on, we are going to talk about David Cronenberg's The Fly, which came out in 1986. Uh, again, a remake <laughs> of a... But, you know, so you you take a film that is clearly in the kind of science fiction horror and you change it. And as I was looking at it, I was like, you know, I remember really liking The Blob. Right. I don't remember the last time I saw it. It must have been 1990, right? So we're looking at essentially 30 years almost between times I've watched this film. I just so happened to have a copy of it on in DVD sitting on my shelf. And so a little less than a month ago, I put it on and started watching it. And Rafe, it was like I was blind, but now I see. That's a really interesting response to this movie. <laughs> I finished watching this film. And I need, I just, I needed to talk to somebody about it. And I think I went on Facebook and I was just like, oh my God, who's seen this film? Uh, who can, who can talk to me about this? And quite, I have quite a few horror fans and, I, and a couple of people talked to me about it, but um, you know, we have a mutual acquaintance, Mel Gore. Uh, and I think I was talking to, to him and I said, listen, I think this might be a perfect movie script and as I said those words, I was like, no, you know what? He is a cinema buff of the nth degree. He's going to laugh at me. And I and I asked him, I was like, would you watch this film? I know you said you've never seen this. Would you watch this film so we can talk about this? And uh, at some point in time, we'll, we'll have to maybe get him on and, and, and talk about it. Because I think this is a, almost a flawless script. I'm not saying it's the best script of all time. But I'm, I'm saying that I feel like this movie should be watched by anyone who wants to watch uh, write a write a movie script horror or otherwise because this is possibly the most efficient script i have ever seen yeah i can't disagree with that from a from a script standpoint it it is um very conservative and yet very well structured um yeah i i can't disagree with any of that now, I'm not saying that this is a perfect movie uh, by any stretch of the imagination, <laughs> um, but 
you had said that this feels very similar to John Carpenter's The Thing, and you're absolutely right. Um, when you are dealing with an amorphous killing machine uh, that that comes from beyond and uh, can hide from within, as we see on several occasions, um, <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> uh, that uses tendrils and 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 such, uh, and is it is very much a gore centric film, but it's it's using practical effects in a way that we just don't see in horror these days. Everything seems to be, while makeup is still very popular, so much is enhanced by CGI. This is a film that has almost zero CGI. So everything is either practical effects, um, makeup, uh, opticals. There is some CSO in there. Uh, not, or, sorry, not color separation overlay. That's Doctor Who speaking. There is green screen that is used to, and there's some stop motion, which Composite, is used to, yes. yeah, there's some varying degrees of success. Um, yeah, the composite shots are the ones like I, 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 you posted the 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 gif about uh, about this one as an honorable mention, and I heard somebody posted about how the effects still hold up, and I was like, some of them do. The composite shots, not so much. <laughs> so shortly after watching this, I thought clearly, you know, when we when um, you you say that I like to do my research, I love to do my research. I thought, you know what, I need to do. I want to rewatch this, but I want to know what the director is thinking in this film. Scream Factory did such a great job with John Carpenter's The Thing. I mean, there's so many hours of extra footage and commentary. Uh, and I sometimes will just put on The Thing and listen to the director's talk because I like people who talk about things they're passionate about, regardless of right. what it is. I like listening to them talk about the things that they love. I thought, clearly, they must have something for the blob. If not, uh, you know, so I will go to Scream Factory. Yes, of course. In fact, in October of 2019... They came out with this and it immediately, the print sold out. And so I was like, I, if I go to go on eBay, I've got to get this for like $60. And I, not in this economy, Buster. Um, <laughs> but I'm very happy. So I'm bummed to say that I didn't get a copy before you and I got a chance to talk. But I am happy to say that for the month of October, uh, Scream Factory got a new shipment in reduced the price ridiculously and I got it for under $20 and it's on its way but because shipping is as shipping does during a quarantine um, it's not going to arrive in time but I am very much looking forward to two things one watching the new transfers to see if those composite shots are done a little better on the blu-ray uh, and sometimes blu-ray really shows off bad not bad special effects, but really Flaws. makes that... It's not even a flaw, because at the time, it was probably state-of-the-art. But, you know, right. time doesn't age well. Every, it doesn't age everything well. And sometimes it really exploits the, the those differences. And sometimes it really brings um, the quality of the filmmaking in the forefront. And, and the second thing I'm looking forward to is I really want to hear the director and writer, Chuck Russell, talk about the making of this film because um, I, I find it fascinating. And Russell himself, I find fascinating. Of course, this film was made, it was written before he was slated to do the uh, Friday the 13th Dream Wars, which I'm going to go ahead and Nightmare say Nightmare on it. Elm Street. Nightmare on Elm Street. Yep. Sorry. My gosh. <laughs> I, I just wrote a note of myself to re to relook at Friday the 13th. Nightmare on Elm Street 3 Dream Warriors. Um, which I think is the I, I think the is the best of the um, 
the sequels. Agreed. Uh, uh, I really enjoyed that one. It really struck me as a, a tween and teen. Um, that was sort of kind of, it felt like a really punk way to access horror. And actually, what I, I say that now, I think punk and horror really kind of go hand in hand in many ways. Uh, you know, Return of the Living Dead being the, the best example of that, but that's <laughs> neither here nor there. Um, sometimes horror in the 80s, it went hair metal and horror goes hand to hand. And there's there's a lot of examples of that. Kevin Dillon's hair in this film oh my might God. be the biggest uh, roadblock to anyone watching it if you see stills of it. But uh, I feel like, oh, you know what? Let me just go ahead and say this right now. Spoilers for 1988's The Blob. <laughs> because I will not talk about this film without spoiling it. So you have been warned right now. I don't know if you're going to put a, a warning at the top of the, the podcast, but I want to talk about every nook and cranny of this gelatinous film. Sure. And, and no, I'm I want going you to, to spoil the hell out of this thing. So spoilers now. I don't think we've given anything away so no. far. But you have been warned. If you have not watched this film, stop the podcast, watch the film, come back <laughs> and join us. Uh, I, I promise you, unless you are truly a squeamish viewer, uh, and if you are, this is this might not be the film for you. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I, the effects, I think still, the, the grotesqueness of the effects are almost comical at this point in time because so much more, special effects have gotten so much more realistic where when if you were to if they were to make this film shot for shot now, I think it would be very difficult to watch because it would seem too realistic. But this film is just Fangoria enough to um, to really f- feel like you're watching uh, the culmination of horror in the eighties. Oh, I I think the the composite shots aside, I thought the visual effects in this were phenomenal. Mm-hmm. They did they did very much, especially as the blob gets bigger and starts using tendrils. Uh, that reminded me of kind of the climax of the thing, yes. uh, especially. But which is why I made the comment about it being very similar to the thing. But like the dissolving of bodies, the way it sucks them in uh, the phone booth shot alone. Let's get to the, You know what? Let's take this in order because I feel like in order to, to this movie builds in such a manner uh, because we talked about the effectiveness and efficiency of this film, this movie's script builds in such an effective manner that you actually are doing it a disservice. If you talk about, because <laughs> you're right, because <laughs> the phone booth scene is possibly the best section of this uh, movie, it, uh, both script wise, visually effects wise, the horror wise, the drama wise, uh, the em- empathy wise. Uh, no, sorry. Uh, pathos. Pathos. It is a pa- it is both a terrifying and uh, scene in a scene filled with just split second pathos that I think is that is the best scene in this film. And probably if I had to show you one bit of it that would be the scene i would show you but i don't want to get there yet i want to start i want to start with the logo not of the movie but of tristar right (laughs) i didn't realize how much i missed tristar's opening logo credits this is the third tristar film i have seen in the last two weeks and i had that thought two weeks ago when i saw it the first time now by now i'm like oh yeah it's tristar again Pegasus. I, 
in a way that only that and Orion Pictures. Yes. I feel like nowadays, if I see A24 at the opening of a film, I know I'm in the, I'm, I know I'm up for something good, right? Like Blum, A24. Blumhouse, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, those two. Exactly right. Is The conversation, I actually had that conversation this morning on Facebook with somebody else. Like those two uh, mean that I, I, I know that it's already been pre-screened. I don't have to know anything about this film. I can just go in and I, I'm going to see something of quality. I'm not saying that Orion and TriStar are quality films by any stretch of the imagination. What I am saying is that so much of my development as a film viewer came from that. And, yeah. and I think the moment it hit, I was ready to accept this film and I was so excited about it. I, I remember having that feeling a few years ago Oh, geez. Over a decade ago, um, <laughs> I, I was sitting down to watch a movie that I was having to review at the time because I was working as a film critic, and it was the the Disney opening sequence. And sitting watching this movie that I really wasn't interested in watching and seeing that Disney opening and going, you know, I can't really remember the last time I saw the Disney opening and was disappointed by the movie. Um, so I, sometimes we get that feeling. Is it the new CGI one where you kind of see Disneyland across the the riverscape? Or I don't is it think the, it was that one yet. Or is it the Tinkerbell? Uh, yes. Yeah. That one, you know, I don't think... I couldn't tell you the last time I saw that because I think right now everything I'm going to watch from Disney is going to be on DVD or Blu-ray and they're going to replace that. But yeah. now I'm going to write this down. I kind of want to go onto YouTube and watch that if, if it exists. Cause I know Disney hunts <laughs> them down like the monsters they are. Yeah. <laughs> so you mentioned the, the, the opening, the uh, studio slate. I, I did have a note about the opening credits where I jotted down. I bet they were really proud of these credits at the time and they I, probably should have been. <laughs> the, yeah. The opening credits, at the timer are fine. You know, the the opening credits kind of splash from the John Carpenter's The Thing is so beautiful. Um, and for the time period, you know, this coming out six years even before this. But that that's CGI. I think that's like the real, like, I think the, or not CGI, but like you can tell c- computers definitely put that together. And it's like, mm, meh. <laughs> uh, I do believe you uh, talked about Last Starfighter fairly recently, which yes, is um, <laughs> uh, the uh, earliest uh, CGI, one of the CGI things, blah, 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 blah. I, I, I rewatched that film recently. I was like, wow, CGI has come a long way. Um, <laughs> but before, I, you know, even before we get to this, Rafe, had you seen this film before? I had not. I had okay. never seen uh, this movie. Okay, cool. That That's exciting to me. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I need you and the audience to understand that I watched this film last night. And when I watched it last night, it was only the third time I'd ever seen this film. So I watched it once, uh, probably in 1990, once about three or four weeks ago, and then again. So I've only seen this thing three times. And normally when I talk about a movie, I've probably seen it in excess to a dozen to 30 times. Uh, so I am still learning about this film. I am still, but I saw things last night uh, knowing what was going to happen that I, I wouldn't have picked on otherwise. Uh, and then, and when the Blu-ray comes, I'm going to learn it again. And like, I, I am genuinely excited to watch this film a lot to <laughs> truly appreciate it. And that sometimes makes me super sad. Um, but let's talk about this opening. 
We're going to get to Christmas season and the rest of us are going to be watching It's a Wonderful Life and Drew will still be pouring over the blob. I might. <laughs> I'm telling you, I might just be there. If you want an indicator of how good this film is going to be, the fact that no dialogue is spoken for the first four minutes of this film and all you get is the stars and sun, the camera tilts in towards the earth slowly pans down again all a kind of the thing in, in sort of a way yes unto a small town we don't know where this town is it's anywhere america clearly america and it are is you sure deserted. you're not reading my notes are you are you in my room <laughs> reading my notes listen great minds think alike <laughs> the only thing that we know from this is that there is no one around it's not a metropolis and because of all the signs in every single shot, they're getting ready for ski season, right? Let it snow. Uh, we're looking forward to ski with you. Uh, snow sail. But there isn't a flake of snow anywhere to be seen. And we get empty street, empty hardware store, empty fountain kind of splashing over onto the pavement. Empty, like it's just... There's an empty movie theater. And and mm -hmm. what we're doing is, and again, this is how effective this is um, and efficient this is. These are all sites that we're going to see in the movie. So it's already setting up that these places exist. It does it without you even realizing it. And right before we find out why this is set up, the, do you remember the last place that you see before we find out what the, what the misdirect is? What the last shot is? Isn't, is it the diner? No, it's not the diner. Okay, then no, I don't remember. It's the graveyard. <laughs> you see, the, it's all these static shots. Not static shots, because there's movement, but like, you know, the, the, the camera holds frame. And then when it cuts to the graveyard, the camera starts to pull up, and the score fades away, and we can start to hear a roaring sound. But before we do, you can't help, uh, but as an audience member, think... I know I'm going to a horror movie and this town is already deserted. Therefore it's going to drop us in the action. But that's what I thought. What did you think? I, I, I jot, jotted down the, the creepy vibe of this empty town and the beautiful soundtrack. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I just, I was like, this has already happened. Are we going to do a, you know, three days before uh, type thing, you mm -hmm. know? Yeah. And it's really, I mean, it's really super effective because the town itself is not creepy. The town itself feels very, um, I don't want to say, um, uh, oh my God, my brain just completely froze. Um, Andy Griffith. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's very, it Maybe. is a very homely, yeah. um, comfortable town, but I, I think the, the emptiness of it and the soundtrack just gives it this, this very kind of creepy vibe, uh, as an audience member. Now, I don't know this for a fact, because I haven't listened to the, and the director or the writers talk about this yet. But there are several, several, I should probably just say many, there are many references to Stephen King novels, particularly The Stand in yes. this movie. And at this point in time, I love that we're like 30 minutes into this and I haven't even talked <laughs> But at this time, I'm thinking... It, we're, we're in 20 we're recording this in 2020 so of course first thing i'm thinking is plague right this is there's a plague <laughs> yeah, this is this is post pandemic it feels like um it sets it up in the same way that we get the quiet place right like 
it does mm. look like it's been abandoned quickly. Um, but we're at the we're at the cemetery. It pans out. The score fades. The audio comes up, and we it just it just pans slightly to the left, and we realize that right adjacent to the graveyard cemetery, not graveyard, it's not that creepy. The cemetery is the high school football stadium, and the reason this this town is abandoned is because they're all in a football game and everyone is loves their football in this town. And so that's the whole town is there and everyone cheers. And it's such a weird feeling because it shifts so dramatically to high school sports drama. (laughs) I I don't know that it's that weird a feeling. I I could very much see that being done in the small town that I grew up in. Oh no, I'm, I'm not saying that. Uh, it's unusual right. for small town life. I'm just saying as a viewer who's prepping yourself for something horrific to suddenly shift uh, gears from what has happened to this town? Where has everyone gone to? Oh, nope, there they are. It's like <laughs> it's like finding Waldo. Nope, he's right there. No, oh, he was in the crowd the entire time. <laughs> and thus begins yet even another misdirect on a, a Hitchcockian level. As we are introduced to our movie's protagonist, young Paul Taylor, wide receiver. Yeah. Yeah. And his jackass friend. Yeah. <laughs> Scott. <laughs> oh, man. Scotty is the worst, isn't he? Oh, my God. Yeah. So I, I, I jotted down, you know, Dylan and uh, uh, Shawnee Smith, they look so young here and i think part of that is because their careers didn't really take off for another decade so when they were really in the spotlight they were 10 years older so yeah they really do look like babies here compared to that yeah she's she's 18 during the filming of this um is she okay she's 18 the film came out she had just turned 19 so um she is a senior in high school at the age where she had probably just graduated high school when she filmed this this is this is like the beginning of her career. And I feel like that adds to the legitimacy of the characters because everyone playing a teenager in this film is either is a teenager or has recently stopped being a teenager. Right. And everyone right. who is young in this film is in fact a young kid. And that's that's super important. We'll talk about that in a moment, too. Yeah, I mean, we're not doing the 20-something, almost 30-something being passed off as teenagers. And I think this is really important because... What we haven't really talked about is the blob as a, as a um, ideology or as an icon of horror, because, you know, this is a remake. 1958's The Blob, um, starring Steve McQueen, who was, I think, 30-something years old playing a t- high schooler um, in that film. He's clearly, you know, an older guy uh, right. surrounded by teenagers. It's so strange and off-putting. It, it feels like that clip from 30 Rock where Steve Buscemi is walking around the high the school. Hello, fellow teenagers. Right. <laughs> right. Like, um, and here's the thing. And, and God, one tangent after another, but um, the blob, I feel, is very iconic. And considering that there's only been two blob movies, I think in the the minds of horror fans or viewers, I don't remember a time where I wasn't aware of quote unquote, the blob because it gets referenced so often. Um, Even, even today with monsters versus aliens, which I guess was like almost 10 years ago, there's a blob character in there. But like, I feel like if you were to say the blob, you're not going to have to explain the blob to anybody. I think pretty much everyone aside, it's jello that eats people. I kind of feel like that 
that exists in the zeitgeist in a way yeah. that doesn't require any kind of explanation. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. I, I, I yeah, and that, and I thought of that that monsters versus aliens thing too when I was watching mm-hmm. this, which is almost every single character in that monsters versus aliens, at least the monsters part of it, are representative of the things that I love most of horror films. Because <laughs> you've got. Uh, Attack of the 50 foot woman. You've got the invisible man. You've got the creature of the black lagoon. You've got the blob and you've got the fly. Uh, right. You know, like those are almost shot like point for point. My favorite like aspects of, of what is considered horror, which is actually science, science fiction horror. Uh, right. Rafe, I'm going to, I'm going to, I think I'm going to just talk too much. So I need you to ask me questions. I think otherwise <laughs> I'm going to go frame by frame through this movie and and not do a service to our our listeners. No, you're absolutely fine. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I just some some notes as kind of going through the the beginning of the film since you you kind of wanted to take a chronological approach. Yeah. Um, you know, I, as I said, I mentioned the comment about the cast members being so young. Uh, I loved seeing Jeffrey Demun, who plays the the sheriff here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my my first thought when I saw him was I, I don't remember seeing him outside of a Frank Darabont flick. Because you know he's he's pivotal in like the majestic and 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 other Frank Darabont films, and of course right. he was in The Walking Dead when Frank Darabont was doing it. Yeah, I didn't realize I Darabont wrote the script, right? And that's and that's the thing that I've been holding off by saying is, but you're right, Frank Darabont wrote the script. He co-wrote the script. Um, you had mentioned the names of the 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 writers, and you kind of you pass over it. No one really talks about it, but you're you're talking about a script that's written by someone who has written one of the most successful most celebrated screenplays uh, of all time, right? Which is his screenplay of Stephen King's um, The Shawshank Redemption. Uh, Right. And, you know, one of the things you didn't ask me earlier, I'm just realizing it now, is how I would would pitch this movie to someone. um, Yeah, I had it all set up and you were talking and I didn't want to interrupt because you're being just fascinating. So, (laughs) (laughs) But here's, and I didn't even think about it until just now, but let's do it this way. Imagine the person responsible for bringing the Shawshank Redemption to life and then ask them to write a horror film inspired by Stephen King and Alfred Hitchcock using the best of practical effects for that time period. That's all I would have to say, you know, yeah. and, I, and I think and it's like if you know me and you're having this conversation and you haven't seen this film, I can say this is on par remake wise with John Carpenter's the thing. I'm not saying it's uh, as good of a movie because it's not, uh, I don't think, I don't think it's a, is it on par with it as a script? I think it maybe exceeds John Carpenter's thing. Maybe as a script, just as a script, but, uh, and who knows how much this film will grow in my estimation as I explore it more, because I, so far every time I've looked into it, I've only grown an appreciation for it. Fast and Furious. That's what the Street Writers Podcast is. Ten minutes each week on writing motivation, inspiration, and activation. With guests that range from Academy Award winners to convicts, all of whom will blow you away with tips and tricks to get your short story, screenplay, novel, play, comic book, or business presentation off the ground and kicking ass. Mark Bellucci and Dan Chichester award mercenaries who have had plays and short stories published, films produced, and comic books authored for Marvel, in addition to copywriting for various ad agencies. 
No, it's not the boring, highfalutin writing class you suffered through in high school. It's a pure shot of creative adrenaline as we take writing off its high horse and bring it to the streets. Got 10 minutes? Then check out Street Writers and get writing. Let's talk about the first twist because you've already kind of alluded to it. And yes. that is our our football player, Paul, who is very clearly set up at the beginning to be our protagonist. Yeah. Now, um, we've got Paul. We, he's almost a, he's a POV character, right? Um, and it makes sense, too, because when you're going small town America, you're going to go. I'm surprised he's not the quarterback, to be honest. Right. It, it, the fact that he's a wide receiver is kind of an interesting choice because a quarterback is someone who is a leader and a quarterback is someone who has confidence. And when we are introduced to Paul, he doesn't have confidence because he's clearly the star receiver who wants to ask the pretty cheerleader out but doesn't have the confidence. And so you have to – how do you change that in the script? Well, you make them the receiver. You make them talented but not – you know, it's all about timing. And, of course, we have this great scene where moments after they say it's all about the timing – he catches this amazing catch, gets tackled by these guys. He's almost about to lose consciousness. He's at Shawnee Smith's uh, feet. She leans over him. Great camera shot from his point of view. Are you all right? Yeah, Meg, you got plans for tonight? And then he passes yeah. out. <laughs> and there's That's some, one way to do it. <laughs> and there's something that about what Russell and Darabont do with the characters in this, which make them instantly likable. Um, or dislikable. Or dislikable, Yes you know straight off the bat how you're going to feel about these characters. And it's going to place this seed as to what happens to them later. And and because this film is about uh, subverting your expectations, the way they, they familiarize the viewers with these characters instantly is so masterful. Because I like Paul. I don't know anything about Meg. I kind of like Meg. Uh, you know... I don't, I feel a little shifty towards, uh, you know, his buddy and it just gets worse and worse yeah. and then it gets terrifyingly bad, but they do so as a reason, you know, like you celebrate the good qualities of people. You, you definitely, uh, the despicable characters, there's, there's something else, but at the same time, we're introduced to our hero and heroine. We're also, uh, introduced to, uh, the bad boy of the movie. Now, the beautiful thing about the original poster for this film is it's just simply uh, some kind of horrific mass killing somebody, right? Like, right. Uh, this, you don't know who it's it's killing. It's just you know that this is a terror, a horror film, and and you kind of get an idea of what's going to happen if if you come in contact. But we're introduced to um, uh, Brian Flag. Flag, of course, named for. Uh, uh, Randall flag from the, the, the stand uh, because Darabont is already making plans for what he wants to do with the rest of his career. And that's uh, <laughs> crawling to bed with Stephen King, King shadow. And, and, and uh, no, uh, he is there to specifically um, uh, carry Stephen King to new heights because while Stephen King is sort of like the apex horror predator for the, the seventies, eighties and nineties, it's Darabont that legitimizes him as a, a a commercial success outside of the genre. Yeah. Both in, and, and that's the thing, too, is like, you know, you wouldn't have said that, yeah, I believe that a Stephen King film sh is worthy of 
uh, the Academy Award or multiple Stephen King films are worthy of Academy Award nominations until Darabont. And, and this really speaks to him as a writer. And had someone told me in 1996 reminded me that he had written co-written this script i probably would have jumped back and this probably would be my favorite film i probably i don't know i would have been like i don't know what would have happened right <laughs> um, but we're introduced to uh, a really great scene it's great it's really well edited and it's it's another introduction character introduction all we see is kevin dylan in the worst hair extension mullet of all time it's not a good look for anybody at any time in in our history <laughs> <laughs> but it's clear that this is uh, these are hair extensions and this is not actually his hair. It has a feeling like this character stepped out of the Lost Boys. He was one of uh, David's David's yeah. vampires who just, you know what? Where was he during all this? Oh, maybe this is also takes place in California, though it doesn't matter. Maybe he didn't go to Santa Clara. Uh, maybe he managed to escape that. I feel that 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 flag comes straight out of that group. He just left the group before they all got turned into vampires. <laughs> the look is distinctively in that era. It, it is absolutely 100% to the point where he's got those, I don't even know what they're called, the little metal studs on the collars of the shirt. If he had had a bolo tie, that would have really fit the era well. Um, <laughs> we get this great scene of editing. So while we're, we're getting the audience is cheering and they're cheering for Paul. Right, they're cheering for Paul in a way. They're kind of cheering for Paul as a football player in the way that we're now, as an audience member, kind of cheering for him in his blossoming romance with Meg. But at the same time, the cheering continues, and we get flag for no good reason. Going, you know what? I'm out here in the middle of this desert. Here's a broken bridge. I should get on this motorcycle and I should jump it. And as he's setting up to do so, we still see hear the football audience going, "Go, go, go, yep. go!" And they're cheering him on. And like, I find myself cheering him on. Uh, and so when he wipes out, you know, I don't realize that this is Chekhov's gun or Chekhov's bridge, Chekhov's right. motorcycle. Um, <laughs> Again, are you reading my notes? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So he crashes. Uh, we're introduced to Trash Can Man. And the only reason I bring up Trash Can Man is one, not only is he, he become important, but he's an, again, another nod to the sand. Um, Trash Can Man, who is just this homeless guy with his beautiful healer. Uh, who is looks like such a sweet pupper, <laughs> who applauds Flag for crashing, finds a beer can, pours it out, smiles to him. He kind of smiles back, and they share this kind of moment of, okay, you caught me, I screwed up, uh, and then he disappears. And I'm like, kind of like, gosh, I hope we see that trash can man again. He seems like a really sweet fellow. <laughs> Well, I, I, I found it, and, and and again, it's, I think, one of those retrospect things. It always seemed to be, in a lot of the horror movies of that era, the homeless guy who finds whatever the bad thing is, you know, and, mm. and pokes it with a stick or whatever. And, of course, that's the case here, as he's the first to, he's the one who discovers the blob and, and gets infected by it. I did not see the twist coming when they get him to the hospital. I mean, that blew my mind yeah so again i had seen this once and i i forgot every single one of the twists of this movie so we we there's a really amazing bit of comedy that takes place uh with our our kind of our scuzzy characters right you know we get um uh scott and and paul are both going on dates tonight you know where he's gonna date meg he's he's asked her out they're gonna go out there's a whole build-up 
with with buying a condom that that has a great payoff that there's some really decent comedy there's great timing yes. in this but we to to lead what you're saying we get the the trash can man he sees a meteorite fall from the sky it crashes he explores it the blob attaches to him he goes running off screaming dogs barking we cut to paul and meg in the car and they're they're kind of talking in, in fact they're even their dialogue sort of sets it up a little bit uh, about what's coming because I feel like she even says something that that kind of feels like it sets up and suddenly the the, the trash can man runs into the middle of the road and gets hit by their car. <laughs> it's like what is this right. the worst first date ever? Um, right. Yeah, and we get a scene with um, Flag and the trash can man. He sees there's something on his arm. He's trying to help him. Trash can man runs into the car. So we get this: the bad boy and the good guy meet. And we instantly know that they know each other. We can tell that the setup from the setup that there's hostility between them. Yes. Uh, Flag is gross to Meg right off the bat. He puts his arm around her, uh, and you're like, oh, "This guy, what a d bag, right?" And you got to wonder like how we how he's going to fit into this. They take him to the hospital. Flag leaves. He once the guy's at the hospital. Once he realizes that there's paperwork, he realizes that people are going to blame this on him. He's out. There is a brief moment, though, where he leans down as they're taking the the homeless guy away. And he says, don't worry, old man, old dude, they're going to take care of you. No one witnesses this except for Meg. Right. So Shawnee Smith. And and there's this moment. There's a look on her face. She does a really good job where she's like, there's more to this guy than meets the eye. And that's important. Right. That's, I didn't catch that, really. So that's that's interesting. Yeah. And I, you know, knowing what's happening, I, I paid more attention to that. He leaves and her gaze follows him and Paul puts his hand on her back and kind of guides her back to the seats so that they're going to wait. He's like, goes to get mega soda. She's like, yeah, anything diet. You know, it's like, oh, he goes to get a soda. We get this moment of horror when he sees something very thing-esque. I'm sure you have this in your notes. You yes. <laughs> see the, the blanket over the old man shift in a way that is unnatural. The head tilts, the eyes are white, the mouth is open, and Paul runs in to grab the doctor, who at first I thought was a relative of Bill Murray. He looks like one of the Murrays, the Murray <laughs> brothers. But you know who it is? No. It's the actor who played a racer head. Oh my god. I was like, this is one of the Murray brothers. I looked it up. I I, I don't know him as name. Forgive me, David Lynch fans, please. Uh, if he's the actor, brief, brief cameo. But again, there's many of these cameos in this film of yes. people who played pivotal roles uh, in horror films that clearly um, are making cameos. Not, not I don't want to say not because of their talent, but, but clearly the filmmaker is like, well, these guys are good. Let's put these guys in here. The, the sheets pull off so you could check on them. There's only half of a guy. Where did the blob go? Paul goes to call. Uh, to explain what's happened, and we hear a scream. Cut to Meg. Meg goes to investigate. Before I tell, we talk about what happens next, Rafe, I'm putting forward to this. I think that Megan Penny, played by Shawnee Smith, and I've got to start doing some research, and if, if you are a film critic, particularly if you are, are a woman, I want to hear what you have to say about Meg Penny 
because I'll be honest, this film focuses on the male characters far more than the female characters, except as victims. I think that Meg Penny is perhaps one of cinema's great heroines on par with Ripley from Alien. <laughs> Gauntlet has been thrown down. Yeah, you said you were taking a crusade, but uh, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> and, and here's why it seems like I am snorting something, especially in comparison to Ripley. Ripley is such a strong female character, but that's that can be problematic. She as is shown as being, I mean, she's a security officer. Um, this is blind casting. She wasn't, uh, you know, uh, an alien, she, as you talked about in the very first episode. She wasn't written to be a female character, so, you, you, you know, there is still a lot of male gaze used on Ripley that is problematic. Yes. Um, but she is still a, a powerful character. Meg is set up to be an upper middle class cheerleader. And yet every positive action that moves the plot forward to the defeat of the blob is she is the catalyst for every brave action. She's the one who takes it. She is this movie's star and heroine, but the way it's filmed, you, you are never, know. you wouldn't know it. Yeah. Because every good action that she takes uh, is traditionally what the, the male hero, essentially what Paul would have done if he were to make it out of this scene, <laughs> which cut to Marion Crane. <laughs> yeah. She goes to check up on Paul and he is being liquefied in the most horrific special effect of this film. Yeah, it 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 totally blew my mind because one, Paul is our protagonist. There's, yes. there's no way that he's not safe. We see him on the phone trying to get in touch with the sheriff so he can explain what happened because the doctor could not care less until half of the tin can man is, you know, gone is right. disintegrated that's when the doctor's finally paying attention so paul's taking it upon himself to notify the authorities we see the dripping i mean we see the blob behind him out of focus mm -hmm. we see the dripping down from above we see him look up and scream and the camera cuts away and i assume okay hero's going to jump out of the path right and so yes. when she runs into that room and he is already enveloped by the blob and being uh dissolved in front of her I was like, oh, shit, what what is going on here? This is against the rules. This film doesn't care about your rules, Rafe. <laughs> yeah, I, no this kidding. film was written to throw those rules out the window. And this is not the first time we're going to say that because this breaks movie tropes left and right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good way of putting it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So now as an audience member, where, where what are you going to do, right? Because if if Paul's our hero and he can die, who else? Like who who is safe in this film? Yeah, it's brilliant. I know it's so hard to talk about this film as a whole, and I realize it's just going to be a 3 hour long podcast to <laughs> talk about this frame by frame. So, I mean, there's there's certain things that we have to skip over. I, I hate to do it. You need to watch this film and understand because this movie does. I've never seen a film that creates Chekhov's gun so frequently and so subtly. But yeah. 
so at this point in time, also Meg should be dead, right? She she goes to pull him free. She just pulls off his arm. She gets <laughs> thrown against the wall and knocked unconscious. But the thing with this is the, the blob is actually going out the window when she's doing this. So it's already heading in a direction opposite her. If it had just taken a moment to reach out and dissolve her, that's the, the end of the film, right? Right. The alien has won, um, but it doesn't. Um, we get a nice, uh, you know, we get the family. She's home. No one believes her. All we have is an arm. We're assuming that that Flag is the one. Brian Flag has killed him. The police sheriff is out looking for him. He's going to get this kid. She's- Which frustrates the hell out of me because why wouldn't people believe her? Like the doctor saw the half dissolved man. Why is it that nobody buys into her having seen this? And this is what happened. This blob thing. I mean, I, I, that that was one part of the story that I'm, I'm not saying it's a weakness of the script. I'm saying it frustrated me as an audience member. I mean, I agree with you. I think that actually is a weakness of the script in a sense. Um, I think we have to right now pause and talk about what the blob is, not as um, a creature in a movie, but what it stands for. Uh, in 1958, when the blob came out, they they chose the color of the blob very specifically that there was a there was an obvious choice the blob is something that starts off small in middle america and absorbs people and grows and grows and grows and there's a reason the blob is the color red because it is a it's a stand-in for communism like the 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 1958 blob is a parable it's about communism and how where you least expect it it's going to grow and grow until all of america is taken care of um the fact that cold affects it in in the original movie and we're in the middle of a cold war in 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 that sense that you know that's part of it uh in order for this film to be remade if you're still going to take the political approach on this this is can no longer really be about communism though admittedly we're still in the middle of the cold war in 88 not middle of sorry we're still in the shadow of the cold war but like john carpenter's the thing this is talking about that which hides within us um, and that which is faceless, um, it is a level of paranoia. So the blob in this one is rather than being this kind of jello, cherry jello red, it's kind of this undulating, cancerous, tumorous color. It's kind of an undulating pink and white and, and paleness. And it, it, in many ways, it's a stand in for paranoia. Um, later in the second half of the film, or the third act of the film, it's going to be for conspiracy theories and government conspiracy. Right. There's very much a, um, a connection to, uh, the AIDS epidemic, which is, which is definitely at its height around this time, even in the same way as it, as sort of the thing was at the beginning of the epidemic. Um, this is clearly something in mind. And so there is something for us to, to latch onto. And I think there's, there's some class issues in this film as well, even though it's a small town, you know, the rich people, have certainly more of a of a stance and it's also kind of about normalcy in the hierarchy of the society and the so the, the um so, yeah society um but you are right the doctor saw that um but the police already there's a scene that we didn't talk about because it's you know, it's not super necessary but it already sets up that flag is is a troublemaker we knew the yes. flag was on the scene we knew that he had had an altercation publicly with our hero, uh, he had already set ourselves up in the eyes of the audience as sort of the bad guy. Uh, and so um, I, they are already presupposed to believe that 
that flag is kind of the bad guy. And as soon as they find him, they know they've got him. And it's that moment where the sheriff, Herb, realizes that he's not the killer, where you realize that he is genuinely afraid. And he has a line that is that is quite cool where he's like, uh, you know, like, yeah, I'm I'm concerned for all my people. Like, you know, Darren yeah, Bauer. Seems like tonight I'm afraid for everybody or something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We didn't talk about his flirting with Fran, the cafe uh, owner, uh, and how they're going to meet at 11 o'clock that night for their burgeoning romance. You know, like that's an important little twist. Like these characters are kind of one offs, but they they have these little things that make you go, oh, I like them. Yeah. I was instantly rooting for Herb and Fran, right? And which is going to make that that scene coming up a little bit later more effective. So yeah, our 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 um our hero is dead. <laughs> right. Our heroine is being passed off. No one believes him. It works really well. Again, you're talking about the um the director and writer for um, Nightmare on Elm Street, which is a uh, no one believes me. Why won't anyone believe me that there's something wrong going on? I mean, that's, that's a really good point. That's the best sort of opening to a horror film right because you as the audience know it's real and you get that frustration why won't anyone believe it because if everyone believed you right off the bat you know they could do something about it that's that's where you kind of build that um but you're right the doctor saw half of a guy get destroyed could it be that they think that there could have been a line in there was like why would they what would they do with the bodies he killed he killed half of an old he killed an old man took half of his body killed a young guy took everything but his arm what is he some kind of freaking cannibal like if you would put that in there, would that have solved that script plot for you? Maybe. Yeah. I mean, it just, it, it just stood out to me that there were, there was another witness. So, yeah. I mean, it's not, I didn't lose, you know, it, it didn't <laughs> no, ruin my appreciation <laughs> of the film, but that just did stand out to me. Yeah. So let's real quick, we got to yeah. up the pace, but. No, uh, I know. Sorry. <laughs> talk about the characterization of, of Scott, who I've already alluded to is just an absolute piece of trash because uh, when we see him, he's up on lover's lane trying to get with this girl that he's already bought the condoms for the joke that you alluded to earlier. And it's like, we've already gotten between the way he buys the condoms and he tries to blame it on Paul. Right. And the behavior that he's exhibiting in the car with the girl, we already know this guy is just an absolute jerk. Yeah. You know, and and and, they're going to take that to the next level. And then they, they take it to the next level when he's mixing their drinks. He has a, a bar in the trunk of his car. Yeah. As which I, you know, I, I'm not saying high schoolers don't have that, but that's not normal. Um, but among the bar in his car, because we didn't already think that he was a jerk, he had made the point to the girl that she was important to him because she was wearing his class ring. In the bar, there is a cigar box full of class rings on necklaces for him to give to women. Yeah. This so guy... when he when he gets dissolved. I did not feel so bad about that. No, and and that's the thing too. We talk about the efficacy of this film. They suddenly stop the film's action. The the narrate the the narrative momentum stops so that we can spend two minutes with Scott in the trunk of his car, building up that this is a date rapist. Yeah. To the the highest order. That he is trying to get this young woman, who, by the way, is uh, actress Erica Alaniac. Yes. Um, <laughs> who, who, the character is Vicky. Erica Alaniac, for those who don't know, she is the pretty, quote unquote, pretty girl who Elliot kisses in E.T. Uh, uh, she's 18 years old in this movie. The next year, she'll be a Playboy playmate. 
she was uh, in the Beverly Hillbillies movie. And the reason that Erica Eleni actually jumps out of the cake in Under Siege, the reason I know her is because I grew up in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, for about three or four months in the summer of... (laughs) They made a film in Myrtle Beach, right? Uh, Less than a mile from my house called Chasers with Tom Berenger, Erica Alaniac. Dennis Hopper filmed this. So Dennis Hopper is in Myrtle Beach within a mile of my house for four months. Erica Alaniac's there. Tom Berenger's there. Everyone's there. Chasers. Garbage film. Don't watch it. But I would go out there and I would watch. So I have seen Dennis Hopper from a distance many times. But like I'm I'm like, I recognized her this time instantly. But it's this it's this wonderful scene where like we are standing horrified as this guy is, oh, it's hot? Oh, let me open this blouse for you. Oh, I mean we could take the shirt off. And he reaches into her blouse and starts screaming as the tendrils of slime come out and dissolve him. And it's like, she, the, the thing was inside of her. It's coming out of her mouth. It's causing her body to um, implode. It is a horrifying scene. And it is brilliant. And it's and it's simultaneously horrifying and satisfying. So cathartic. Yes. Because they are letting you know that they do not condone this sort of behavior because again they pause this film essentially to build how much of an asshat this guy is and he absolutely 100% deserves it and then you get that amazing shot as the the blob is oozing its way down the drain after killing both of these and the only thing that you see floating inside of it is the ring and it's so good yes all right jumping to the next location uh at the diner Yes. The uh, the clogged sink yeah. is brilliant because uh, it, it gets you twice. Mm-hmm. Because there's the expectation when her, uh, the, the woman's employee... Uh, well, uh, first, uh, presumably Fran, starts, di- Fran tries to do it first, and you're like, oh, right. it's going to get Fran. Right. And then he comes over, the dishwasher comes over, and is like, oh, let me take care of it. And he really reaches down in that drain, and you go... Oh God, it's going to get him. It's going to get, and it doesn't. And then it does. (laughs) And then it does. And it's like, it's just the perfect timing of letting the audience build up this tension that doesn't pay off and just enough time for them to relax because it didn't pay off for it to come back in and get. And it was like so effective. A lesser director would have just gone with the obvious, I think. Yeah. With that. And that physical effect is perfect because... I mean, it's it's entirely practical effects. There's some opticals used in that, but you know, we get a, a human being pulled down a drain pipe, <laughs> literally. It literally, and it's done not through short. It's not CGI. It's not through a bunch of short clips. It's it's almost one continuous shot uh, yeah. to the point where it's. I mean, it's really an effective thing. And and just one other thing, we get a really wonderful moment between. Flag and Meg in the diner, and then we we find someone who actually likes Flag in uh, in this town. Fran actually is like he apparently has a positive relationship with her, and that's right. like you realize one that makes you like Fran even more. And it real you it's sort of like we get to from Meg's eyes see that Flag isn't all bad, right? And and now as an audience, you're like, oh oh, he's the hero. Uh Oh, <laughs> and yet in every single, almost every single scene, 
uh, it's Meg who does the, um, who does it. Like she palms the pill that they're trying to get her to go to sleep. So she doesn't go to sleep. She's the one that tried to get him out of prison. She's the one that tried to convince him that something wrong is going on. She's the one that t- makes him go investigate off the bat. Like she's still leading the charge in every single one of those scenes. Yeah. yeah. No, you're right. So that takes us to the phone booth. No, not yet. Oh, that's right. That's right. They're running away from the thing. They hide in the freezer. The blob tries to tear down the door. It touches the ice and the frost in the freezer and it goes away. And they, there's a moment of clarity between them. It doesn't stay, but it, it's there. Uh, there's like a thousand and one also little Easter eggs, but we're, you know, we didn't even talk about Moss and the snowmobile. Um, but that's, <laughs> but, but that's okay. Cause clearly I want to dissect this film frame by frame. <laughs> no one wants to hear that, but yes, you're right. So the phone booth, please tell me how much you loved the phone booth scene. I loved it and I hated it v- visually. It is, I think you said earlier, I think it is one of the best moments in this movie. It is, uh, the, the feeling of claustrophobia when we're in the booth with her and the feeling as it surrounds her. And I mean, it's, it is so beautifully and wonderfully done as she's trying to make a phone call and can't, didn't dial the number right. And I mean, it's just like the tension is so intense. And then when she looks up and she sees, you know, she hears, uh, the sheriff has, was heading to the diner and she looks up and there's his body pushed against the edge of the phone booth from this blob that has now enveloped the phone booth. And all I could think was, man, he died off screen. We didn't even, we didn't even get to see him die. And this is yet another, uh, expectation, uh, skewing because if flag isn't the hero, maybe the sheriff is right. Like, so like they built up the sheriff because now he has a love interest, right? Fran right. is his love interest. She needs to be saved. We love Fran. We've shown that she's a kind person. She's a sweet person. And there's that moment where you think if ever there was a time for a hero to swoop in and save somebody, it's the sheriff saving the woman that he is just starting his romance. And when she looks up and sees that disintegrating face right before the phone booth collapses in on her. You can't see it, but I'm doing the French kiss right now. Mwah. Yeah, it's Mwah. It, it, it is. It, it, if I were younger watching this movie, that would be a traumatic moment. But yeah. as an older viewer and one, you know, more developed tastes in cinema and stuff, it is a beautiful moment. It is so wonderfully executed. I mean, no one is safe in this film. No. And we're, and we're not done yet. And that's the thing. We're just not done yet. <laughs> yeah. So we get Flag and Meg escape the diner. That's why I got a key. Yeah, that's why he's got a key. Breaks the window. <laughs> we see the door get locked. George locks the door behind them. I mean, like, with the exception of the doctor, actually. And that's such a great point because I missed the, the fact that the doctor saw that body in half and he should have believed them. They have an answer for just about everything in this movie. They can't get to the police station, but they end up seeing the police car out in the woods, the scary woods, right? Like they go right. out and and it's like, oh, the police, well, there's his car. There's the there's the deputy sheriff's car. Where's he? He's in the woods. He's in the, the dark woods. And they, there's this brief moment where like, we shouldn't go in the woods. And Meg just works, starts walking. She goes into the dark woods. Leading She's the not, charge. She leads the charge, uh, which is when we get a, 
I don't want to say a twist per se, but the film changes slightly because this is when we get introduced to uh, Dr. Meadows and the uh, unnamed scientific organization that comes in in their hazmat suits and their helicopters and their barking dogs and their like military gear. Uh, right. And it, well, military ranks too, because one yeah, of them is a colonel. So that's yeah, true. I mean, it's it's the government in some form, right? Yeah, it's the government in some form, and that, and there's this moment of, ah, few, the cavalry's here, right? Like there's this <laughs> kind of thing. It's like, yeah, you have, and again, this is a very white town. The only the only character of color you've seen at this point in time is Moss, who is buddies with Flag. Um, Dr. Meadows is the leader of a scientific organization and he's a black man. And I, like, there was this moment where I just went, thank God, <laughs> like I'm watching this thing. Thank God. Someone in this film, it's not all white, you know, like that's it. That is, it's so, I don't, I forget sometimes how important that is. Um, it's Bo Billingsley, by the way, Bo Billingsley right. is the, the, is Moss. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so like you have this moment where it's like, get in the van. Don't worry. We're going to take care of this. And they explain what's happening. Like, they explain the movie right off the bat. It's like, oh, we're halfway through. This is uh, a bacteria that It's probably, the same thing that wiped the dinosaurs out? It's the same. It might be this. It might be the same thing. Like, these guys are here. They're an organization that is prepared for something like this. We have a way to contain it. We're the good guys. It's from outer space. It's an, it's an alien of nature. And I was like, yeah, that's what I remember, right? I remember an alien from outer space, just like the original blob comes in and uh these are the good guys they're gonna save everything and again i i felt this moment of relief uh a month ago when i watched this and it's like cool and yet <laughs> that is not what happens <laughs> no that, that 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 was the even more impressive uh you know secondary twist you know i, I mean well tertiary twist if you count the sheriff dying as, as a twist i mean there's so many yeah this is just a woven fabric of a script and like one of the issues that i had early on in the film is he goes to uh, flag goes to see moss to borrow his socket wrench set to to work on his bike you know we, we had the wipe out at the beginning of the film he needs to go work on his bike and all i could think is why didn't he take his bike back to the garage and work on it there and, and that bothered me until we get that scene where they're in the van and Moss pulls out the socket wrench, which apparently was a Chekhov's gun. Yep. And that's why he was working out it, on it out in the middle of nowhere, because they needed him to have the socket wrench for later on. If he had just brought his bike in, he wouldn't have had the socket wrench. And it's like, wow, that was actually really well plotted out. Do you want me to explain more to make you appreciate it even more? Sure. The reason he doesn't bring his bike back is it won't run. And so he leaves it in the woods. He right. gets the socket so he can go back into the woods in this next scene where we find out that the government is, in fact, bad guys. We wouldn't have known that if he hadn't gone back. So he goes back to, to fix the bike so he encounter the the um, the the old guy. Right. He goes, right. he goes to fix the bike. He encounters the tin can man. That's the only reason he goes back into the woods, because if he had brought the bike in, he wouldn't have even encountered the guy. He goes back into the woods to get the bike, which he left. To leave town. To leave town. And then he finds out that the government agency is, in fact, responsible for this thing. It is a yes. satellite, a U.S. satellite. This is a biological warfare. Meadows is a crazed warmonger. Uh, 
the all the the corporals and the military guys are there to see how this works they're going to wipe out a small middle american town as a test program essentially i i think they don't want people to die like but if people do they'll they know that it's it's working so now we as an audience we've we've split it we've split the party right flag is here and he has uncovered the truth Meg has gone back into town and has realized that her little brother has gone to a movie and that she knows she needs to get him to be safe. Um, so we have the action sequence of Flag getting ready to get this information back to the people, the authorities, the proper authorities, the, I guess the one sheriff who's left, the, the deputy. The deputy sheriff, right, Bill. <laughs> but we have Meg, in quotes, going back for the cat. Right. So right. she's going back into the mouth of danger, like we're going back into danger, back into the fire to save her little brother. Of course she is his family. Why wouldn't you? We haven't talked about the little brother and, and all the, 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 the hidden guns that are in that scene with his douchey little, um, eighties bratty friend. Right. But they go to the movie theater. Why do they have to go to the movie theater? Well, they have to go to the movie theater because that's the most iconic sequence in the 1958 film, right? It's that everyone in the original blob, they're in the movie theater. The blob starts oozing its way out of the projectionist booth and we get everyone running out of the theater as the blob kind of oozes out. That's the iconic shot. That You have to have that in this film. And they they have it, and it is super gross. I mean, people are getting dissolved and cracked and yo-yoed and hung from ceilings and uh, all sorts of stuff. It chases Meg and the two kids into the drain, uh, in the, the sewer system, right? Um, right. Again, she's she runs into a theater. There's this great shot of everyone running out, which is that class, the classic shot but we have Meg running in. Uh, she finds the kids. She dodges the blob. The, do the blob is actively chasing them. She gets into the manhole cover. She drops it in there. And now they're making their way through waist-high sewage water with the blob pursuing them. And the blob's pursuing them under the water, Jaws style, basically. Like, <laughs> this is a brilliant film, man. I love this scene. <laughs> Yeah, no, and I, the the tension in that moment too, when they're walking through the 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 water, and she says, you know, look out for the rats, and the camera shot, you know, showed the rats, and she says, look out for the rats, and the kid goes, what rats? Oh, it's like, oh no, it's there with her now, right? Yeah, like I think I feel like if this thing was even remotely sentient, I think you know when you when you're listening to the trailer, and it's like, if it had a brain, you could reason for it. If it had a face, you could look it in the eye. You know, that kind of a thing. Like, it almost feels like this thing kind of has got a romance going on with Meg because it, <laughs> it, it, it could probably kill her on multiple occasions and just doesn't. And that's a bit of a bummer, but it's also super fun. Again, it, it feels like, uh, really proves that like all those super, super brave stuff, the tough stuff is done by this, by, by Meg. Like Meg Penny is the hero of this movie. I, I'm going to throw out a theory. This is going to going to move us uh, forward quite a bit as well. Please do. So the blob, I I think I think the blob is misunderstood. I think the blob is actually the hero. I mean, it's his name is the title of the movie. Yeah. But he he, he kills Scott, who's you know a, a date rapist. Yeah. You know he kills the bratty friend, who's a bad influence on the the little brother, and he and he kills this lead scientist. Like when they are standing above the manhole later on, there's like eight people there to choose from, and he grabs the lead scientist, who's the one responsible for all of this. The blob is killing the bad guys 
I mean, sure, a couple of good people like everyone we've been rooting for the entire movie also <laughs> happen to get eaten. I, I think it's rather than him being the blob being the hero, it's really sort of an equal opportunity uh, consumer. <laughs> and maybe, you know, in the same way that um, uh, Day of the Dead was uh, a commentary on consumerism because it takes place in a mall. This is you know, maybe maybe this is sort of 80s consumerism, too. We're going to consume everything. Um, you just mentioned something that we can't we can't gloss over uh this movie kills a child it does it kills a child it didn't just (laughs) kill a child it kills a child and then brings it out of the water screaming half dissolved to show you that there's no way that this child is coming back at the end of the film this child breaks all the rules yeah and like i'm trying to think of movies that kill children well let's see jaws jaws and 1988's the blob kill children you know what those are two really good movies. I am. <laughs> no one in this film is safe. Like, you know, if our main care, one of our main characters also died. And there's a couple of scenes where you, f- you think that Meg is going to die. Like she comes close where she's dangling over this thing. And, you know, there's sort of a deus ex scientist thing where the scientists come in and start firing machine guns. Um, and again, some of those scientists are, are film horror B-movie actors and stuff like that, which is kind of nice. Right. You know, they kind of bring them in as, as little cameos. Um, yeah, let me just wrap this wrap this up, essentially. There's a Mexican standoff. I know it's that's probably not the correct term, but I know no, that, that... Well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, uh, it, it is the right term, but it's not probably very sensitive. <laughs> it feels like that scene from The Good, The Bad, The Ugly, right? Like, where, where like everyone's got their guns pointed on it. Uh, in that scene, um, Meadows is the first one to go, it proves the townspeople that Meadows was was the, is the bad well is a bad guy. The town kind of rallies. Um, the sheriff, the deputy sheriff, gets bent over backwards in a way that is just horrifyingly brutal and really well done. Who takes charge? Well, it's Meg. Um, she's going to she jumps into the fray to save somebody. Grabs up a fire extinguisher because he's on fire. The tendrils come up to get her. She does what anyone else would do: sprays it puts two and two together and shouts, it doesn't like the cold and flag runs away. And there's this moment where like, wait, wait, flags running away. Oh, is he actually the coward that we kind of have sort of been building to it? No flag goes and gets checkoff snowmaking machine truck, <laughs> uh, drives it into the city hall we get this really bad model shot of it flipping over. He's unconscious. The blob is going to eat him. So Meg takes the machine gun and a grenade from the body of a dissolving soldier, runs onto the truck, fires into the blob, draws its attention, plants the explosive, leaps to safety. No, 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 no. Wait, 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 wait. Plants the explosive, gets a good action style one liner in. Yes. Come on, you son of a bitch. Leaps off. Yeah, I was going to say, leaps to safety, but... But then gets caught on the strap and falls. It's like this heroic fail. (laughs) Yeah, because no one is perfect in this film, right? Like, you know, like, even though Meg is is clearly the hero of this thing, uh, she's not perfect. She's not a Mary Sue. She, She gets tangled up. You know, this is the kind of movie where she should have her mom in the beginning of the movie says, wait, that's what you're wearing? Sweetie, don't wear those. Your shoelaces are going to get untied. Like, that's what should have happened. Like, the shoelaces get untied, catch on something, and it would have been like, oh, that makes perfect sense, right? Like, right off the bat. But 
There's an explosion. The blob freezes into these beautiful crystals. Uh, the snow, the snow is falling. Everyone comes out. There's almost sort of a Christmas in July sort of a feeling. Uh, and the movie is October. Except it's October. <laughs> and the movie sort of ends. Beat, beat, beat. Cut to a revivalist tent in the middle of nowhere. The priest that we haven't really mentioned yet. There's a priest character who finds a bit of the blob and he's doing a tent tent revival. There's acid burns on his face where the blob splashed him. Uh, fire burned him. Uh, and he holds up a piece of the blob and uh, talks about Judgment Day setting up for the sequel, which never came because this movie uh, cost about $10 million to make and about made about $8 million in the theater. Right. It was a commercial failure like uh, John Carpenter's The Thing before it. <laughs> I'm seeing a theme with the movies you're picking, Drew. <laughs> My next movie was a commercial success. Uh, but um, um, yeah, the, 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 the priest has popped up a couple of times throughout the movie. This is a Catholic priest, collar yeah. and everything. And when we see him at the end of the movie, he has become, you put it perfectly, he's a revivalist minister preaching fire and brimstone and doomsday. And the woman from the, the sermon comes to ask him if he knows when he's, it's coming. And essentially he hints that he, he has this piece of the blob that's still alive and he's going to use it to create doomsday. So it's become, he's weaponized it the same way the government was planning on. Yeah. For religious reasons too, which is interesting too. We, we forgot to mention he's a priest, but he's also an alcoholic priest, right? Like we, we've seen him several occasions True. drinking and kind of fumbling along and he doesn't really have a good concept of personal space. Uh, he, he definitely, you know, he, he messes with Scott a little bit too in the, in the beginning, but yeah, he's, he's not a sympathetic character, but he does survive two encounters with the blob, which is interesting, which I think builds on his, in his psyche, uh, that maybe he was the chosen one that he had been marked by this thing, um, almost in a way that you would feel Lovecraftian. I think around this time I was starting to read Lovecraft. And when you have um, an unnamed faceless tentacled mass that really evokes that Lovecraftian horror of the, the kind of the unknown from beyond the stars uh, and, and that frequently individuals would feel that they have a connection to that unknown thing, which gives them purpose. And that, that really plays off of Lovecraft. I don't think that was unintentional on, on um, uh, Darren Bott's sense, but yeah. 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 I mean, there's so much more to talk about. Like, like we, so I did, I wrote 10 pages of notes last night when I was watching it. And I think we got about three of them. Um, but, <laughs> but if we were to cut, like, I, I, I'm really hope everyone uh, went and watched this movie came back and you've, you've tuned in and stayed with us. I apologize for rambling. No, this it's been awesome. I get when I talk about something that I am truly genuinely excited about. It didn't hurt that I had two cups of chai right before we started recording, and I am caffeinated to the eyeballs right now. All right, well, let's do the uh, closing credits here. Um, yeah, I mean, I have like another dozen things I could mention about the movie, yeah. too, and I've only seen it the one time. I highly recommend it. Uh, I did enjoy watching it. It does have a very 80s action horror sci-fi vibe to it but i you made the comment to me or i think yesterday about it being kind of one of those unsung movies that more people should see and i have to agree with that i i think i'm really happy that i saw it and i think more people do need to see it and so you know i mentioned being a champion um i think i really want to start pushing this film on folks because when john carpenter's the thing failed in the theater when you go into I am uh, uh, Rotten Tomatoes, you know 
Some of the critics really panned it and they were wrong, but the audience appreciation of it is, is through the roof and horror aficionados hold this film, uh, John Carpenter's The Thing as, as one of the great horror films of all time. And I right. think it's only grown in people's estimation. And, and I talk to new fans of horror and it's one of those things where it's like, listen, I know that it's not the kind of horror that you're used to. And, and, and going back and seeing these quote unquote janky special effects, not even that, uh, that kids today would use the word janky, but I still think they should watch that because I feel like the thing, the effects, very few of the effects feel dated. Uh, and the only thing that really dates that movie is the computer technology that you see, like, you know, like otherwise the film for the most part could be applicable today. This film, the blob does feel like a part of the mid to late eighties. Uh, and I think that is to its detriment in a way that the, the, the music that plays the hairstyle, it's a part of what this film is, but I think it, it isn't as timeless as John Carpenter's the thing, but I think as a script, I think it is superb. Special effects of that time period, I think is superb. The acting is fine. And and my new appreciation for it, watching it last night when I came to the realization that how good Meg Penny is as a character, and there's like five more things I want to talk about about her, but I'm not going to. Watch the movie. <laughs> you'll appreciate it. If, if, uh, if uh, anybody out there who has ever uh, created a list of female protagonists in movies... By the way, she actually uses a direct quote from Princess Leia in this film. Uh, Take care of yourself. It's the only thing you've ever been good at. Um, she actually quotes <laughs> Princess Leia in this film to, to um, flags Han Solo. It's it's nuts and completely takes you out. I don't know if it's a if that's a good good line or not, but it was fun. Uh, if you have compiled a list of what you think are the great heroines of film, I I urge you to watch this movie and tell me where you think Meg Penny deserves to be in genre action horror sci-fi because I don't think she gets nearly enough credit and I think that's mainly because of a lot of the creative talent being male but at the same time they create a character who is worthy of being in the hero of the film but I don't know if it's a studio thing or what I, I cannot wait to get the blu-ray to hear their justification for some of their choices on her but I would love to hear uh someone else's opinion on on who is not a dude um, <laughs> about that character. All right, let's take a look at the algorithm says these are other movies the various algorithms say you will like because you liked uh, The Blob. Let's try and really make this lightning round as far sure. as your responses to them. First up, The Blob. Uh, the original one. Yes. It's fine. <laughs> okay. It creeps, uh, it crawls, it leaps, it slides, it's The Blob. The blob the dump. If, you have, if you're not familiar with <laughs> With the five blob soundtrack. Oh my god. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> no, I, no, I know you're right. All right. Um, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, 1978. Yeah, yeah. I, I mentioned how much I love that film. It's 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 another one that uh, again reinvention of that science fight trope. It may be the first remake of a film um, that was successfully done. I have to go back and look, but um, yeah, it, it's it's definitely one of the ones that I think opened the doors for John Carpenter to do the thing for um, these folks to do the blob uh, for Cronenberg to do the fly. So, yeah. Okay. The stuff. Uh, strangely enough, um, I watched the stuff in the eighties. Um, my cop, I told you about the sale that was happening. Um, uh -huh. I got the blu-ray of the stuff coming along with my blu-ray of the blob Candyman, and phantom of paradise. So when those arrive, <laughs> I will be watching all of those. And I'm very much looking forward to watching the stuff again. 
So the algorithm checks out on that one then. Very All much. Right. Uh, the Fly. Uh, I assume they're talking about Cronenberg's The Fly. Yep. Uh, uh, yeah, one of my favorite movies of all time. So, yep, 100%. We're, all right. we're doing good. <laughs> Critters. Uh, I mean, it's an 80s film that um, I think what the nice thing about Critters is it, it it's another film that doesn't take the horror genre completely seriously. Um, and that is a film like Gremlins that's sort of a horror movie that's infused with comedy. Um, yeah, that's fun. Uh, I, that's a fun film more than I, I don't think it's a great film, but it's definitely a fun film. Okay. The Keep. Uh, I'll tell you about my Keep story some other time. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I think it's I think it's of its time. I would have to rewatch. I would have to. This is the one one that I alluded to you was coming. Yeah. This is one of my all time favorite underappreciated movies. Now it's been a long time since I've seen it. I will say that. And the reason I'm saying I'll talk to you about this at another time is we don't have another extra 15 minutes to do a keep tangent. So (laughs) I'm just going to tell you to move to the next one. If there is one, Uh, otherwise it's going to be a three hour long program. Uh, Fright night. Oh my God, Brewster, you're so cool. Uh, yeah. Um, (laughs) Fright Night almost made it to my top 10 horror movies. It's probably in my top 20. It's brilliant. I think the remake, while unnecessary, was actually quite good. Um, I would have to watch both of them again. If you're shaking your fist at your podcasting device right now because I said that, I'm sorry. But I think it's I think it's a really I think both are really incredibly smart films uh, that are done well and they understand the genre very, very well and they get to play around with it a bit. Okay. Slither. Uh, Slither is the, uh, I almost got the Blu-ray of Slither as well. Um, The trailer for Slither is possibly one of the best trailers I've ever heard. I don't want to repeat it now because it's used a derogatory term for female genitalia in a way that seems cowardly. And I I, I don't agree with that, but there, that's such a good film. It's such a weird film, but yeah, you can tell that Slither shares some very similar DNA to 88's The Blob. Yeah. Okay. Two more. The Monster Squad. Oh, man. Both man's got nards. Uh, Monster <laughs> Squad was a hugely influential film. Clearly, uh, Rafe, you understand my love for the kids on bikes genre. Um, right. You will understand my love for Monster Squad even more in the next, uh, in one of the f- future sessions that we're going to be playing. Um, but <laughs> yeah, I formed a Monster Squad after I saw Monster Squad. I had never seen Monster Squad until this year when I was prepping for an episode that seems to have disappeared, which is a shame because I was looking forward to talking about that one. All right. And last one, last year's Halloween movie that never got recorded, uh, From Beyond. I don't know if I've seen From Beyond. Oh, it's a Lovecraftian uh, horror. Oh, 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 yes. God, how did I miss that? Oh, yeah, I'm really Stuart, embarrassed. Yeah. Stuart, Stuart Gordon, he did two uh, Lovecraftian-themed horror movies yes. with the same cast. Yes, of course. Ugh. I apologize vehemently for my ignorance. I blame <laughs> it on the chai and my and my current fascination with the blob. No, From Beyond's wonderful. Um, yeah. I can see similarities, but, but I feel like they are so vastly different in tone it's interesting yeah. that they would that would bring that in there but i guess i did bring lovecraftian into the mix uh, that was more for the end but yeah i'm so glad lovecraft is being recognized for for being the bigot that he is but also that people are figuring out how to actually work their way around that to, for making lovecraft movies it seems like we're kind of at a, a new lovecraftian renaissance of so yeah 
No, yeah, I agree with you. And we talked a little bit about that last time you were on too. We it's, did, yeah. Uh, it's yeah, it's did. fantastic. All right, finally, we always end with the pop quiz. Are you ready? I am, and I'm not going to interrupt you this time. I know how much <laughs> hard work you put into this, so please go <laughs> ahead with your multiple choice. Uh, actually, I think on this one, you're you're pretty well fine to interrupt me if you want, but uh, uh, you've actually already answered most of them in the over the course of our conversation. <laughs> uh, number one, the purpose of killing Paul so early in the movie was to make the audience feel like no character was safe a move that they borrowed according to director Chuck Russell from the playbook of what famous filmmaker? Uh, that would be uh, Hitchcock. Oh, sorry. That would be Hitchcock. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Number two, screenwriter Frank Darabont is best known for his adaptations of Stephen King's Shawshank Redemption, Green Mile, and The Mist. He put part of his love of King stories into the script for this movie as well. Which of the following is not an intended Stephen King reference? A, the last name Flag for Brian. B, the last name Penny for Meg, C, the last name Geller for the sheriff, or D, the name Canman for the homeless guy? Uh, Geller is the answer to that one. And they, I feel like the name Herb Geller is, I think he's a musician or writer. Oh, is it? I I didn't see anything on that. When I looked up, I was thinking Herb Geller, as soon as I, that, that tweaked something in my brain. I have to look that up, but I feel like that is somebody I, I have an, on a CD somewhere. I feel like I have a, a Herb Geller something or other. So, Yeah, as you already mentioned, Flag is a reference to, a, well, a recurring Stephen King character, but primarily in The Stand. Uh, Can Man was The Stand, and Penny is, you know, short for Pennywise from It. So. Mm-hmm. Mm. Uh, Number three, director Chuck Russell and screenwriter Frank Darabont initially pitched this remake to New Line Cinema, who passed, but put Russell and Darabont in charge of what other project instead? You've already said it, so I'm just going to let know. you go. Oh, you're not, I just, I'm kind of curious as to what choices you were trying to trip me up. Oh, uh, okay. Uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, The Dream Warriors, Friday the 13th, The Series, Hellraiser, or Wicked City? Oh, God. Wicked City, <laughs> the, the anime? Oh, Wicked City, such a bizarre i think it was one of the first anime i ever saw of course it's the 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 nightmare on elm street three dream warriors yep absolutely (laughs) all right and finally obviously the film is a remake of the 1958 film of the same name paul dying undermines the idea that he's the steve mcqueen type character of the original who lives to the end according to director chuck russell who does he view as the steve mcqueen character of the movie a paul despite his death B, Flag, who rides similar motorcycles, C, Meg, the archetypal final girl, or D, Reverend Meeker, suggesting what happens to McQueen after the movie. Oh, that's interesting. Um, I mean, I want to say Meg, but it feels like it's Brian Flag. So is it Meg? So who, it is Meg. <laughs> well, yes. good. And I'm guessing that those quotes came from the director's commentary i'm not sure but a lot of this information that i found were quotes of chuck russell but they weren't cited as far as where they came from so i'll be very curious to see if you find those in that commentary track i'm gonna throw one more thing at you this is not the first sequel to the blob uh there was a film that came out in between this called beware the blob it was considered heinous we we recently had um the artist robert hack on our podcast um who and company a doctor who podcast uh, Hack, of course, is the the artist for the Chilling Adventures of Sabrina comic, which spawned the, the television Netflix series. And we were talking about the Blob because I just finished watching it, and I which I couldn't shut up about it. It's really annoying. I, it was very unprofessional <laughs> of me. He's a horror fan, and he's like, "Oh yeah, the actor who played Jr. on Dallas directed the sequel to the Blob." So Beware the Blob is the movie that Jr. shot. 
Oh. <laughs> and, and, and there's a ref there's actually there's two direct references to that movie in this one uh one of course is the movie theater scene and there's another where right before they go out um both of the kids are are eating red jello um they're slurping right. it up yeah all right man where can people find you and what do you want to promote uh i mean i guess if i'm promoting anything right now uh it is going to be my doctor who podcast who and company you can find out on whoandcompanyellipson.com. If you like Doctor Who, if you like just listening to writers and directors and actors and artists talking about television just in general, but Doctor Who very specifically, you can find us there. I think we're about to start our fifth season. So we've got quite a bit and we have a, a, a really great assortment of guests. We've got a really fun one coming up that I'm recording. I don't know how many hours from now, but um, uh, <laughs> if you if you want to find me, let's just say on Twitter, I am at D-R-E-W, so Drew, M and then followed with M for Meyer. So it's D R E W M M E Y E R. I think I'm going by boy howdy on Twitter, but, but Drew M Meyer is where you can find me. Please tell me how much of an asshole I am for, for suggesting that Meg Penny is uh, on par with Ripley. Uh, or if you, if you agree with me or want to talk to me about um, the blob, that's kind of what is taking up my brain space these days. I would love to hear your thoughts, uh, good or bad. So yeah, if you, if you agree with me that you like this film, get the word out there. Let's, I want to see that, um, that Rotten Tomatoes score go up, uh, for audience appreciation. (laughs) All right, man. Well, thank you for introducing me to this movie. Um, unlike the thing, it was one I had not seen. So it was really, uh, it was really great to, to see this one and a good, good addition for this Halloween. So thanks. You're welcome. And I'm sorry for talking everybody's ear off. (laughs) It's all good, man. That's I, I, I. It's not like this is the first time you've been on the show. I know what I'm getting into. <laughs> <laughs> I can hear people going, oh, it's another Drew Meyer episode. Let's just <laughs> skip that. We have two hours that we can do. It's better ways to spend our two hours. <laughs> Although I will put out, point out, depending on how editing goes, this episode runs longer than the running time of the movie. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> Listen, I've been doing Doctor Who podcasting for seven years now and considering the average runtime of, of an episode of new who is 45 minutes and our average uh, episode time runs anywhere between 60 to 90 minutes this is a a, a trend that is not going away <laughs> anytime soon one quick note before we're done. I, I found this timing really hilarious. Uh, this week, Bloody Disgusting put out an article called Why the Thing and the Blob Make for a Perfect Horror Remake Double Feature. And this is the week that we're running the Blob episode, and it's the same guest who brought us the thing. So I, I think Drew would definitely agree with that sentiment. So that does it for this week, but you can keep the conversation going throughout the week on social media. Share your thoughts about the Blob, or maybe tell me about a movie you'd like to come on the show and talk about. You can find me at Talon Hess on Twitter and Letterboxd, that's T-A-L-N-H-E-S-S, or the show at Have Not Seen This on Twitter, on Facebook, where at Have Not Seen This Podcast, or email me at HaveNotSeenThis at gmail.com. And of course, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes, including next week's episode. It's very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. You know what I mean? It's awfully difficult. Of course, I won't get out of here until she dies or I die. 
This podcast is available through all major podcast sources. Positive ratings and reviews are always welcome, as is just sharing the podcast with a friend and spreading the love. And if you like World of Warcraft or other Blizzard Entertainment games, be sure to check out my other podcast, Citizens of Azeroth, a World of Warcraft podcast also available through all major podcast sources. Special thanks to Chris Talent for our wonderful theme song, and thanks to Drew Meyer for providing this week's conversation. Until next week, I'm Rafe Telsch, and this has been Have Not Seen This. Happy Halloween, and be kind to each other.